Hi, and thanks for listening to a little more conversation. I'm Ben O'Hara Burr. Today we speak to Canadian and longtime Associated Press regional reporter for Afghanistan and Pakistan, Kathy Gannon, about her long and acclaimed career covering one of the most tumultuous parts of the world and her decision to call it a day after more than three decades. You learn about just how short-staffed restaurants across the country are heading into what's hoped will be a banner summer to make up for two tough pandemic years and how that might scuttle any recipe for success. On this International Day Against Homophobia, Transphobia and Biphobia, I speak with Tammy Plunkett, author of Beyond Pronouns, The Essential Guide for Parents of Trans Children. But first, Prince Charles and Camilla, the Duchess of Cornwall, arrived in Canada for a three-day visit today. It stops in St. John's, Ottawa and Yellowknife, with a focus on Indigenous reconciliation. We look at why there's increasing pressure on the royal family to provide substance instead of just ceremony on these trips to Commonwealth countries. First up, we begin with the royal tour that began today in St. John's, Newfoundland uh, and Labrador. Prince Charles and Camilla, the Duchess of Cornwall, here on a quick visit, just three days. Governor General Mary Simon, Prime Minister Trudeau were on hand to welcome them. The Governor General, of course, the first Indigenous person to hold the role, uh, was among the speakers today to welcome them and encourage the couple to use this three-day visit to speak with Indigenous peoples and hear their stories. And in this way, we we will also promote reconciliation which is not one act or project, nor does it have an end date. It's a lifelong commitment to learning about Indigenous communities and about their lives, lived realities. Governor General Mary Simon there. The Royals also took part in a ceremony honoring Indigenous children who attended residential schools in uh, Labrador in northern Newfoundland. In his speech, Prince Charles discussed Indigenous reconciliations, expected to be one of the big focuses of the tour, and referred to Canada's commitment to reconciliation with its Indigenous peoples. However, as we look to our collective future, as one people sharing one planet, we must find new ways to come to terms with the darker and more difficult aspects of the past, acknowledging, reconciling, and striving to do better. It is a process that starts with listening. The Prince of Wales there, of course, here uh, to mark uh, the Queen's Platinum Jubilee, 70 years on the throne. Uh, The couple are in Ottawa tonight. They'll also uh, stop in Yellowknife in the Northwest Territories. And while these visits tend to be high on ceremony and low on substance, you get the sense that this one, uh, words will matter. Well, joining me now is Royal Watcher and Professor of English Literature at the University of British Columbia, Sarika Bose. Thank you so much for your time tonight. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. Um, the purpose of this visit, I guess this comes at a time when they're in this country, there's a real focus on reconciliation. And, and I guess a lot of, there'll be a lot of eyes on, on uh, Prince Charles and uh, Camilla on this trip to see what's said and done. Yes, I think so. And I think the first big speech that Prince Charles made really touched on a lot of the concerns and interests of Canadians now, certainly with a focus on reconciliation and following what Governor General Mary Simon said, that reconciliation is just not not just one act, not just some words here and there as tokens, but something that is an ongoing process, something that will evolve. And I think Prince Charles really thought about that in his speech when he spoke about listening, just spending time listening to stories. Um, and then when they took part in that ceremony at the Heart Garden in the uh, Lieutenant Governor's uh, house garden. 
Right. I, I mean, clearly the climate has changed here considerably since the last visit uh, in 2017. And we know that earlier in the year, uh, Prince William and uh, and and Kate went to uh, the Caribbean. Usually, you know, everywhere they go has always been a you know a public relations success for the family, but for the royal family. Uh, but they ran into issues in the Caribbean this year. The legacy, the traditions, the legacy of these visits not as appreciated as it used to be. People want to hear some substance and some recognition of what's gone on in the past, the history. I think that's true, and I think that um, there is some recognition, I, I think, in the uh, royal circles about the need for that substance. And I think meeting with different Indigenous leaders, as they have done so far, um, I think that I think some Indigenous leaders are seeing this as an opportunity to highlight some of the issues, um, make them much more public on a global level um, because of this visit. So I think there is perhaps some hope um, and there is certainly one kind of connection that Prince Charles himself emphasized and will do throughout the visit uh, when he goes to the, to the Northwest Territories, when he goes to the um, round table in Ottawa led by Environment um, and Climate Change Canada. There's that connection between his deep commitment to environmental responsibilities and with uh, First Nations ways of um, thinking about the land. It's always a bit of a fine line for the royal family, of course, because Charles has been criticized in the past for voicing what could be considered, uh, you know, quite mild political views. But still, uh, I, I guess this is a balancing act for for a man who will, who should or will be king, we believe, one day. Yes, yes. It is a very difficult balancing act, I think. Um, but on the other hand, the, the part of the problem is, of course, that there are certain constitutional requirements for him as um, the head of a eventual head of a constitutional monarchy, but at the same time, the modern world expects the substance that you speak of. And it is clear, I think, from various actions of his, not just the words, that he has tried to take responsibility, especially when it comes to um, actions that uh, support environmental responsibility. And I think he's been trying to do that in England, and he has uh, given moral support to uh, attempts in other countries. I noticed today that the Queen actually made an appearance in England. She was in London opening the new Elizabeth Line, which is a crossrail line. And she I, I don't know whether she knocked Charles and Camilla off every uh, British newspaper, but there wasn't much coverage of it in Britain, if in, if at all, today. Is, is this, I mean, these sorts of visits, do, do you still think they're worthwhile? Well, I think that um, there is this deep belief in uh, at least the El, uh, older um, members, the older generation of the royal family, that there, the Commonwealth really does matter. The that uh, a, a sense of um, solidarity, community between different nations that um, have had this historical connection with each other still does matter, and that things can be done together. Um, that uh, various projects like the green canopy and so on can be done together. So um, in that way, uh, visits to various Commonwealth countries, each of which has a very different relationship with the with the British Crown, um, they can be they can continue to be uh, of use. 
Um, last question for you. We did see uh, just a few weeks back that, uh, you know, the speech from the throne uh, to open the UK Parliament was actually given by Prince Charles for the first time. Uh, the Queen did not do it for 60 years, had done it for 60 years and didn't do it this year uh, because of mobility issues. I guess we are seeing the beginnings of a real change, I think, this year in, in, in terms of the look and feel of who's representing the royal family uh, in public. Yes, I think that um, when the monarch turns 96, there are some inevitable actions that will be taken in the future. There, there's an inevitable progress, I think. And um, I think that when we see this sort of um, action where the queen, uh, for the first time since her, since she, she was pregnant with her children, has not been able to come and open parliament, I think that does signal that there is a, a, a process that is taking place now. Sarika Bose, thank you so much for your time. We'll be watching as Charles and Camilla uh, make their way from Ottawa to the Northwest Territories this week. Thank you so much for your insight. Thank you very much. Well, this would be a remarkable journey for any journalist. From Timmins, Ontario, to city editor at the Kelowna Courier out here in BC, where I am, then abroad. Her work has taken her around the world, from the Middle East to Asia, but one region would captivate her, and through her work, captivate readers, such as myself, right around the world. As special regional correspondent for Afghanistan and Pakistan for the Associated Press, Kathy Gannon has traveled to every corner of the region since 1988, from the Soviets and the Mujahideen of the past to the rise of the Taliban, 9-11, the U.S.-led invasion, the NATO mission, and of course, most recently, the fall of Kabul and the reemergence of the Taliban. In interviews, she'll always say that it is a wonderful and challenging part of the world to report from and to approach people and stories without judgment is the key. Now, after providing a lens on the region for more than three tumultuous decades, Kathy Gannon is going to close out her unparalleled reporting career and no doubt move on to something equally fascinating. But for a look back at uh, the last 30 plus years, joining me now from Islamabad is Kathy Gannon. Thank you so much for your time tonight. Well, thank you so much, Ben, for, for inviting me. Thank you. Uh, I, I was, your love of reporting did you know right away when you were younger or did you sort of fall into it? When did you first figure out that this might be something you'd like to do for a very long time? Yeah, that's a very good question, Ben. Actually, I, I did study journalism um, in uh, Northern Ontario. And my brother actually, two of my brothers were journalists. And I actually wasn't really something I wanted to do because my oldest brother was brilliant. And I just thought, oh, following his footsteps and I'm the youngest. Um, but I did. I ended up actually. And my first job was at the Penny Daily Press, which is one of the first purchases of Lord Thompson of Fleet. Um, and uh, and then from there, I just uh, I just moved on. So I I more I fell into it. Then I have to admit, I, I I fell into it. You said something interesting in the past that I've always agreed with. You thought it was really important to cover and see your your home country, Canada, before going off to tell other people's stories in other parts of the world. Yes, absolutely. And, you know, I I always wanted to. I I think I always wanted to very early on to travel uh, overseas and and report uh, internationally. 
But really, I, I felt that it was so important to see my own country. And I worked in uh, Saskatchewan. I worked in British Columbia. I worked in Ontario, of course. Um, I worked in Alberta. And really, it, it, it for me, and also honing your skills, you know, Ben, on, on uh, reporting is no different in Timmins than it is in Kabul, than it is in Islamabad, than it is in Kelowna in terms of um, reporting, getting to know your your the, your sources, getting to know your subject, uh, following closely the the day to day events. So for me, it was just really important also to hone my skills um, at home and to uh, learn. You know, I did the education beat, I did the city council beat, I did the court beat. Um, it was it was tremendous, and I think it really is the foundation. And it's like everywhere, and it's like anything. Is the foundation that you build, and then from there. So yeah, I'm just like forever grateful uh, for all the the work that I did in Canada before I went overseas. So fast forward to um, the '80s, and I gather you're in Israel at one point working, and you end up in a Peshawar in in northern Pakistan, mm. not, not far from the Afghan border. Um, is it love at first sight? Like when you get there, do you think this is a story that I think I can tell for a very long time? Yeah, no, actually, I came from Israel and then we were mm-hmm. um, in Peshawar, and mm-hmm. um, I was traveling with a photographer friend, uh, Joe Gall, who has since passed away many years ago. And he had actually been to Peshawar in um, the mid 80s and had taken pictures of refugees. Very powerful, and I really would, was, which is why we were interested in returning. And um, I was freelancing, and so for the first, we actually got there in '86, and so the first couple of years we were freelancing and had to take a brief um, respite from it and go to Tokyo to make more money, um, working at the Yamiri Shimbun for a while during uh, um, the English language version, and then going back to. Uh, northern pa- northwestern Pakistan, and continuing reporting in early late '87, and then I got uh, I got on with the AP as a stringer first in Peshawar, and then when the number two left uh, at the AP in Islamabad, they asked me if I would like to come to Islamabad and work as the number two as a local hire. And by then, I had been freelancing for a number of years, Ben. And I thought it would be kind of nice to have a regular income. And uh, and AP was great. And so I thought, yeah, I'll, I'll give that a try. And um, I wasn't there more than a month. It was in August 1988 that um, there was the crash of the uh, C-140, uh, C-140 uh, and C-130. Right. And then uh, the al was killed. And right. then the, the, mm-hmm. yes, go ahead. Sorry, yeah, I was just thinking back to that time. Yeah, I remember that. Yes, go ahead. Yes, yes, and, and so the C one thirty crashed, and Jal Huck, uh, the military dictator at the time, was killed. And uh, and within several months, Ben Jabuto came to power. And uh, in nineteen eighty nine, February nineteen eighty nine, the Soviet, the former Soviet Union left Afghanistan. And really, Ben, it was it was one uh, eventful um, occurrence after another. So I was going to say it's, it's been such a tumultuous and and exciting and obviously mm. challenging time. But you were there, of course, when the Soviets were there. Yeah, you watched the civil mm. war, then the rise, the arrival of the Taliban. Um, what was what was nine eleven 
like? Because I gather as, as busy as it was in that part of the world and as many things that, that had happened, all of a sudden I would have imagined not long after 9-11 when the entire world sort of focused in on Afghanistan, it must have changed the dynamic. Yeah, it was really interesting for me, Ben. It really was after 9-11. I was in Kabul um, at, uh, when 9-11 occurred in the United States. And uh, I remember I was with my friend uh, who was corresponding for Le Monde, and we both looked at each other and said, the world has changed forever. And, uh, and my colleague, Amir Shah, said, after we had gone around to just talk to people about the event uh, in the city, and he said, you know, the, they're going to set Afghanistan on fire because, of course, almost immediately it went to Osama bin Laden. And I got a call from my uh, desk the international editor, Sally Jacobson, is a remarkable woman. And she said, this has happened, because you have to remember the Taliban were in power then, and there was right. no TV. And uh, so I didn't see the images. We didn't really hear about it initially. And she called and said, a plane has gone into the first tower, and uh, into the tower. But uh, And while she was on the phone, the second plane went into the, the t- second tower. And she got off immediately. But it's interesting that immediately the mind went to, and she said, we're not sure, is it terrorism? Is it an accident? It wasn't clear in those first moments. And then clearly soon after, it was very clear. But it's interesting that immediately the um, suspicion fell to Al-Qaeda, Osama bin Laden, and she called. And then we we were um, on it from there. And I stayed in Afghanistan until September 13th then. Um, but obviously, I was booking hotels. Um, we were not the largest bureau, you know, in, in we were Pakistan and Afghanistan covered the two. And so I was booking hotels in uh, Pakistan and, and that to try to set up because I knew, of course, we would be um, building up our, our forces and bringing them in, our, our staff, and, uh, and seeing the entire world. Um, excuse me, through the entire world converged on, on Pakistan and northern Afghanistan. And, uh, and it did change, you know, and, and there's a lot of interesting things happen. Um, hugely grateful, Ben. Um, I, I, the Taliban kicked everybody out, and I had to go anyway because they were going to close the border between Pakistan and Afghanistan just to, to shepherd the, the, the coverage. But then also... Uh, we had uh, more people coming in, and Bob Reed, who's brilliant and, and is now with Stars and Strikes running that, who's fabulous. He was he was sort of our uh, war coordinator, and um, and so we, we they their first attack was October seventh, and the Taliban weren't letting anybody in, and everybody was coming from Pakistan and northern Afghanistan. So I'm hugely grateful when on October 23rd, the Taliban let me back into Afghanistan. So I was the only Western journalist in for the last two weeks of their, um, of their uh, campaign or their, their stay in Afghanistan. So they were quickly um, overwhelmed, of course, by the U.S.-led coalition. I'm speaking with Kathy Gannon, the special correspondent for the Associated Press for Afghanistan and Pakistan from Timmins, Ontario, originally, but has spent more than three decades in that region uh, and has become certainly one of the most respected and acclaimed reporters of foreign correspondents around. Right after this, we'll talk just about the challenges and, and the dangers uh, that you know all too well. That's coming up. 
I'm speaking with the Associated Press's um, Afghanistan and Pakistan regional correspondent, Kathy Gannon uh, from Timmins, but has spent more than three decades covering that part of the world through many ups and downs, well, many, many different changes, one should say, between the Soviets, the Mujahideen, the Civil War, the Taliban, the Americans, NATO, the Americans again, back to the Taliban. Uh, Kathy, before the first time I went to Afghanistan, I think in 2006, I... I studied, I read your stuff like I was cramming for an exam, um, I have to admit. Did you feel a responsibility with so much coverage of Afghanistan? Did you feel a responsibility knowing it as well as you did to try to explain that there was a lot of nuance there that maybe a lot of us didn't understand? Yes, absolutely, Ben. You know, it, for me, um, the, the narratives set elsewhere were really... Um, difficult for me to understand how you know that seemed to 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 carry the focus, and I really I really wanted to focus on the narrative in the country and among the people and what was really going on on the ground. Um, you know, it's it's uh, it's funny. I wrote a piece in in two thousand and four um, that uh, that was for foreign affairs. I was on the it was, how did things go so wrong so quickly? And that was in 2004. And I, I remember always wanting to um, get in the stories, the, the, the perspective and the history and um, who the, the many allies were, you know, as, as um, outraged as people were with the Taliban, the allies that, that uh, the uh, U.S.-led coalition, NATO, uh, aligned with post-2001 had between 1992 and 1996 before the Taliban um, fought bitterly with each other and uh, killed uh, upward of 50,000 civilians in, in Kabul alone and destroyed vast amounts of the city. And so I, I and, and there was a lot of corruption and, and uh, which led eventually to the Taliban in 1996 and here we are in, you know, 2022 or back in 2021 and uh, I remember saying to uh, a friend of mine in December 2001, you know, um, in 15, 20 years, this is all going to, you know, fall apart and um, because allied again with the same people and and uh, and then everybody's going to blame Afghans and JC, we did all this and, and it's all uh, Afghans that can't get along. And I, I really felt sort of bad because... I think, and, and for me, not so bad, but I, I really wanted to give a, an understanding of the history and the people and the perspective of the leadership and the allies that were made, and to try to um, explain as, as it unfolded what was really going on, and rather than, uh, rather than a narrative that said, well, we're doing really well, and you know, we're really getting uh, things done, and, and uh, it's all this one's fault or that one's fault, and, and putting it out there and not, not really getting to the heart of some of the um, decisions that were made, uh, the lack of strategy, the um, performance of the allies, the Afghan allies, and the performance of the, the allies themselves, and, and what was going on, and, and and the many people that were being picked up and um, held for months on end and uh, then being returned to their families. And it led to a lot of the um, return of the Taliban. So, yeah, it was um, not just a sense of responsibility then, I guess, but I just really wanted that to be a, a, a greater depth of understanding of what Afghans were really were, 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 um, were experiencing, were 
were saying because many Afghans, ordinary Afghans, understood the direction that it was going in and, and were, were concerned and wanted to speak out and did speak out. And mm-hmm. I guess it was important, I thought, that their voices also be heard. Um, so I, I, I think that was the responsibility I felt. I'm not so sure I succeeded, but, uh, but certainly I, I, I did give it, give it my best, my best shot. And then in 2014, after covering this conflict for so long, and, and you've explained this, I know mm. you've told this story many, many times about being a host, and, and mm. but you nearly, you nearly, you were nearly killed. Your very close friend and, mm. and, and, the, and the, the photographer Anya mm. Nittenhouse was was killed. Um, mm. Just, do you still th- mm-hmm. that day? Is it still something that you live with? You know, yeah, you could talk about it as much as you'd like. Yeah. Yeah, you're absolutely right, and for sure I do, you know, I mean, I I, I still have injuries that, you know, I don't have that, uh, much use in my left arm, and my right shoulder blade was, uh, two bullets um, destroyed the, the right shoulder blade and punctured the lung. Um, so the, the injuries, yes, uh, to say AP has been truly remarkable in, in caring for me, um, and uh yeah, I remember for sure, and, and it, it always stays with me because um, Anya was a, a gift to, to photography and, and, and my, my gift gift to me. And that day, I remember because we were there in, in Eastern Afghanistan because Anya so desperately wanted to take that perfect image of people coming to vote because it was the day before the, the elections. And... You know, people were disappointed at that point in 2014, the corruption. They were really disappointed, but they still, you know, this, this is the Afghan uh, uh, determination to be hopeful in spite of everything. And it was also the Haqqani area, so it was uh, um, a, a difficult area for, for people to, to say, no, I'm going to we'll give it another try. And so it was really important to her. And we had just gotten into the car and really for me as well, you know, um, at the time when it happened, um, the, the, we, had, we had just spoken with the police, we were in a police compound, um, it was the last of the ballots were going out to uh, these remote areas. It was really the heart of, of Afghanistan and, uh, and for, for us it was really an important, important story to tell both in, in images and in words and and we had just gotten back into the car because I knew there was a, a, um, um, a crazy smoker. And we then got into the car and we were sitting really close to each other. And um, this uh, police commander, who we, we hadn't even interacted with, I don't know if he just, who knows why, why people do what they do. And, and he just took a classic off in a close range and he his AK-47 into uh, Anya and I, we would see only two in the car in the back seat and I was hit with seven bullets and I knew with as many if not more and two were fatal. And I just remember then the the the, the last of the bullets when when they hit the your body jerked and I, I thought a bomb had gone off or something. And yeah, uh, I, I can I, imagine. I, I only yeah. have about a minute left, Kathy. I don't mean to. I just want. I just want to quickly ask you. I know you're you're stepping away from it, but are you are you are you going to miss it? Uh, and do you feel positive about Afghanistan's future? I know that's a lot to pack into sixty seconds. 
Yeah, no, exactly. Um, I think um, Afghans uh, have have a great deal of hope. I think we really have to as a, to, to really seriously look at, at how um, we, the, the the last twenty years and, and where where the, the mistakes were made and and how uh, good intentions, yes, but what, what really in the end was what was uh, was given to Afghans and what was uh, um, transpired. Am I hopeful? Um, you know, I, I feel that Afghans really have a lot to, to deal with now, and uh, and a great deal of that responsibility for that lies with with uh, the international yep. community and, and the last twenty years. Yes, I will return. Of course, I'm writing a book. Um, Kathy Gannon, we, we're out of time, unfortunately. Thank you so much for joining us tonight. I don't know what it's like in your neighborhood. But when I walk around downtown Victoria, it seems like just about every restaurant has a for hire sign out front. I mean, every restaurant is looking to hire people. Of course, Victoria depends a lot on a tourist economy in the summer. Restaurants, of course, are ramping up. Patios are opening. It hasn't been very nice here, but it feels like with a long weekend coming up, summer is on the way. And across the country, I suspect it's probably the same. It's been a tough few years for the restaurant industry. It's estimated 13,000 have closed permanently. Many are still hanging by a thread to this day. So this is meant to be a boom time summer, a successful summer. But staffing shortages, inflation too, but staffing shortages look like they could be a real problem this summer for a lot of places as restaurants try to make up what's been lost. As I mentioned, hiring signs absolutely everywhere here. That could mean shorter hours, slower service for customers. Inflation, of course, is biting uh, into profits, so higher prices perhaps. Uh, Lots of challenges ahead, but none as big as the staffing issue. Joining me now with more is Olivier Bourbeau. He's Vice President uh, with Restaurants Canada. Thank you so much for your time. My pleasure. Uh, just to put this into perspective, how important a summer is this meant to be for the restaurant industry across the country? Oh, the upcoming summer is crucial, absolutely crucial. Uh, we have been in the pandemic for the past two years, two years and a half. And just to provide a little bit more context, mm-hmm. 13,000 restaurants have closed permanently from coast to coast. 13,000 during the pandemic. <laughs> Um, plus half of the restaurants are still at risk of closing today. They are not making any money uh, for several reasons. Um, and sadly, they, uh, they went into a, a ton of debt, uh, over, uh, over COVID. Um, I personally receive calls from restaurant owners who tell me that, um, pre COVID they had $200,000 in the bank. So they had a little bit of of a cushion and now they are under by 200, 300 and even $500,000. And it will take them years and years just to reimburse that. But there are challenges. So this is meant to be the summer, hopefully that restaurants start to make a bit of that money back. But now all of a sudden they're faced by what feels like a perfect storm of costs, but certainly labor problems, labor shortages may, may hurt uh, the industry this summer. Indeed, <clears throat> inflation is uh, a big, big, big problem. And, and even as a, as a citizen, we see it when, when, when we do our grocery. Mm-hmm. But uh, problem, issue, challenge number one is definitely labor, labor cost, because there's a big, big, big labor shortage. And it's 
everywhere in every province, every region, especially the tourist regions. Uh, when we think uh, of Victoria is good, good, good example. Um, restaurants do not have enough staff and they are not enough workers to fill uh, the, the, the places. Therefore, restaurants open later in the morning. Uh, they close sometimes earlier. We see that with a quick service. Um, and in the full service, we see the restaurant op opening only uh, for the good days, the Thursday, Friday, Saturday, uh, not only to make sure to uh, to be productive and, and make a couple of dollars, but also because we want to provide the best shifts to our employees because we, we are understaffed everywhere. Right. I imagine if you own a restaurant, it's tough to get staff to come in on a Tuesday night. They really want to be there on a Thursday, Friday, Saturday night. Um, is this, are you seeing this? You mentioned this. Are you seeing this right across the board? It doesn't matter if it's a big, you know, big expensive restaurant or, you know, something smaller, a cafe. You're seeing these, these issues right across the board. We see, we see that everywhere. And as you said, in, in all type of restaurants, for instance, uh, quick service, uh, think of a co local coffee shop, lo local coffee place. Uh, the owner more and more will, will be in the obligation to work 70 hours a, a week, 70 hours a week because he's understaffed. Plus, um, in a quick service, since the, um, the wage are, the wages are a little bit be, below the, the, well, a lot below the, the, the full service. What happens is that some employees, they move to the retail because in the retail, they can do a dollar an hour more. So the students will move there. Uh, as for the, the full service, it, it's really difficult because during the COVID, <clears throat> before COVID, we were already understaffed. Um, there were 60,000 vacancies in Canada. Currently, as, as summer is beginning, we have in front of us a labor shortage of 210,000 workers from coast to coast. So when you take a look at cities, uh, for instance, Montreal, in old Montreal, a tourist area, Hotels and restaurants are in the are, are in the obligation to literally open their doors over the weekends to try to attract new employees. And during COVID, what happened is that when restaurants closed once, our workers they came back. But the second time, the third time, and the fourth time, well, our our, our colleagues, our teammates, our workers, well, they found job in other industries because they they came back to us saying we do not know when the government will close the restaurants again. So we need more predictability, more stability, which unfortunately we can understand because they have rent to pay their families just like us. It's been, I gather, um, particularly tough to find kitchen staff. I know it's, it's, it's acute across uh, the board when it comes to, 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 uh, to staff at restaurants, but I gather kitchen staff has been a real challenge as well. Uh, it is it is really true. Um, kitchen staff, because uh, first, um, majority of these positions, you need a little bit more training. Um, second of all, because the conditions are, are, are pretty difficult. Working in a, in a kitchen is not easy. There's a, there's the heat. There's a, a short, uh, not a lot of space. It's, it's a difficult job. Um, but moreover, um, the wages um, are not as high as we would like uh, them to be because people may not know, but an average restaurant has a profit margin of only 2 to 3% before tax. 
Uh, it used to be 5%, but it's now between 2 to 3%. So we, our hands are tied because we, we do not have the same attitude as, as other industries to increase the wages as much as, as we would like to. I know there was speculation during the pandemic that a lot of it, especially when there were some of those early reopenings, that government subsidies were keeping workers away, keeping workers at home, or at least not, you know, not incentivizing them to go back. Uh, I, now that those uh, subsidies are all gone, I gather we're reassessing that belief. It doesn't seem to be, the problem seems to be deeper rooted than that. And that was kind of the instability of the industry during the pandemic. Well, the, the problem is deeper than that indeed. Um, the labor shortage, based on the demography in Canada, uh, will continue for the next nine to 10 years. It's only in 2031 that we will see uh, the same amount of workers entering the market, the work market, than the, the baby boomers leaving for their retirement. Uh, so on, for the next nine to 10 years, we have a big, big, big labor shortage challenge in front of us. And it's not only our industry. All industries are the same problem, which is why it is extremely difficult because we are all fighting for the same people. What are you hearing these days? You mentioned it earlier, just hearing calls from uh, from restaurant owners that have gone into debt, that had a bit of a cushion going into the pandemic, that are in debt now. Uh, are you hearing despair out there? Are, you, are, are we seeing the restaurant landscape in this country change uh, right in front of our eyes? That's actually a really good question. Some of them are, uh, dear Lord, um, at the end of, of, of what they can do. Uh, they, 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 several of them have closed and, and others uh, are thinking of closing permanently, uh, which is extremely sad because uh, an important number of restaurant owners rent their restaurants. So they, they do not have anything once they close. Um, in, in, in the meantime, what we saw during COVID is kind of a some, some, some restaurants were able to pivot uh, with delivery and, um, and takeout, which is interesting because it takes uh, generally six months to uh, a consumer habit to change. But that being said, we see now that, now that the dining rooms are reopened, that um, our customers continue to, um, to uh, come see us for takeout and delivery which is really, really interesting for us and, and supports us in, in some way. And if I had a message to all of our fellow Canadians here is please, please continue that fantastic habit on, for instance, on Friday, just to pick up something instead of, uh, <laughs> instead of uh, preparing something home, just continue to support us a little bit. And uh, maybe once a week, a, a, a takeout or a delivery and maybe once a week at the restaurant itself. I'm speaking with Olivier Bourbeau. He's the vice president. Uh, he's the vice president with Restaurants Canada. We're talking about the labor shortage uh, and, of course, the impact of inflation across the country on the restaurant industry heading into what is meant to be a season to try and gain back some of what has been lost over the last uh, few years with the pandemic. After this, we'll talk a bit more about uh, solutions, what can be done, and also as customers, what should we expect and what, uh, how can we help make the situation uh, better, or at least uh, better for those who are working? That's next. I'm speaking with Olivier Bobo. He's vice president with Restaurants Canada. We're talking about the acute labor shortage. Uh, Olivier was saying earlier about uh, more than 200,000 uh, 
short a shortage of more than 200,000 employees in the restaurant industry right now across the country heading into what is meant to be a summer uh, to start to make back some of what was lost over the pandemic with repeated closures uh, in many parts of the country, a really tough time for the restaurant industry. Uh, Olivier, when, when you look at at uh, over at the next few months, the next year or so, uh, is there, are there any quick fixes here at all for the industry? Unfortunately, there's not one easy solution. Um, they say there are different types of restaurants, obviously. So quick service, uh, we can say the middle chains and the big, big chains um, and the independents, pardon me. And um, it, it's, it's, it, for instance, in terms of labor shortage, uh, we have, th- th- there are some solutions in terms of robotics, um, automatization, um, but you cannot apply that on fine dining. You can apply that with quick service. So there's no... There's not only one solution. We need to find solutions for um, the, a certain group of restaurants. Uh, for instance, last week uh, in Toronto, we um, took place our RC show, Restaurants Canada show, the biggest food service uh, industry show um, uh, in Canada. We uh, had 10,000 suppliers and, and, and industry um, colleagues uh, for s- more than 700 um, kiosks, uh, kiosk people kiosk. presenting. Mm-hmm. Um, so we, we, we saw that energy. The, pe- the, 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 the industry is ready, but unfortunately, the workers are not there. And at the show, I'm talking about, the, I'm referring to the show, because at the show, we had uh, several, several presenting robots uh, to serve um, lots of electronic solutions, but again, it does it, it cannot apply in all restaurants. And and that's a difficult because I know there was a, a bit of a scandal recently with one specific uh, chain that had some you know some people working remotely serving and and Canadians I think understand there's a labor shortage but are also off put sometimes by the idea that that labor is replaced. Uh, mm. What do you what do you tell customers a bit about that choice? Yes, yes, I saw the same article. In, in, at the same time, the demography problem in Canada will, will continue for the next 9 to 10 years. That being said, we need more immigration. And you know what? Immigration is extremely positive for our industry because people come with their, their culture, their food, and they literally bring their culture to our table here. So it's, it's, we, are, we are privileged in Canada to have so many, so many choices of, of culture, of food, of dining, of restaurants, that it's, it's so positive to see these people come join our industry and come live here in, in Canada. Inflation, too. We talked about it a bit earlier, but inflation must be doing even more damage now to uh, to restaurants already struggling with staff, opening hours and so forth. And now the cost of everything is oh, going yeah. up and, and, and it's difficult to pass that all on to your customers. Uh, you, you are you are exactly exactly on target. Uh, you are right. Um, we cannot pass along all the increase uh, because there's a limit. You know, uh, at one point there's a limit, a uh, psychological limit to uh, what we are uh, prepared to pay for pizza, for instance. But that being said, inflation had hit us um, really, really, really hard. Uh, the proteins, especially protein, being the star of the plate, chicken. Mm-hmm. At 10.4%, beef at 16.8%. Um, so it's difficult for us. Um, and um, another thing that is uh, that has increased uh, to the roof is 
what we call, uh, in terms of amenities, um, think of natural gas that increased by 22%. And our kitchen work with that. Uh, our rent, uh, everything uh, has increased, which is why our profit margin has, um, is now has passed from 5% to 2% to 3%. So imagine that. It's extremely difficult to make just one dollar uh, well, just uh, just a couple of cents in, in in each dollar. If I hear you, Olivier, what we can expect this summer, and I don't want mean this to sound like a bad thing, because I think we all enjoy the restaurant experience if we can, but we're going to see higher prices, uh, slower service, and fewer opening hours. Uh, but still important, though, that people uh, go and support the industry. You think because it is an important part of our of the Canadian Canadian fabric, so to speak. Yeah, well, in, in, in terms of prices, we uh, we try to absorb a little bit of it. First. And uh, in terms of service, actually, I would like to thank our, our uh, say a big thank you to our customers because uh, they are patient and they understand that we are low staff and they are so happy to come visit us and to be served that they, they, they are really, really, un, uh, really thoughtful with us. So thank you. Thank you very much to everyone. Olivier Bobo, thank you so much for your time tonight. Thank you very much. You may have seen some statements about this today from leaders, including Prime Minister Trudeau out here in BC, Premier John Horgan. Today's International Day Against Homophobia, Transphobia, and Biphobia. It was created back in 2004 to draw attention to the violence and discrimination experienced by lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, intersex people, and all other people with diverse sexual orientations, gender identities, or expressions, and sex characteristics. Now, in 2009, transphobia was added to the name of the campaign with a focus on violence and discrimination against transgender people that year. In May 2009, France had become the first country in the world to officially remove transgender issues from a list of mental illnesses, can you imagine? Well, joining me now from the Calgary area is Tammy Plunkett. She's author of Beyond Pronouns, the essential guide for parents of trans children. Tammy, thank you so much for your time tonight. Oh, thank you for having me. The inspiration behind the book is a, is a fascinating story about you and your family. Uh, would you be able to share it with, the, with our listeners? Absolutely. So my, uh, I, I'm the mother of four children, and my third child came out to us as transgender uh, when he was 11. He was assigned female at birth, uh, but came to me and said, Mom, I'm, I, I'm transgender, and I'd like to take testosterone. And it pretty much floored me because it was not on my radar. <laughs> it was uh, not something that I was prepared for. Um, so it started a long um, journey as a whole family. Mm -hmm. How old was he at the time? He was 11 years old, and this is uh, almost six years ago now. So only in grade five quite young, uh, but he had been quite miserable for about a year and a half since uh, starting puberty. Uh, I think he was just having the wrong puberty for his body, and it, it gave him a lot of distress and anxiety and depression, and we knew something was wrong. We just couldn't pinpoint what it was, and, and he had to figure that out for himself, and once he figured it out, it sort of clicked for him, and then it became a, a case of needing to affirm him to to keep him safe and happy. Was was this? Uh, did you know much about transgender issues before this? No, what I so I'm a former registered nurse, and what I did know was 
uh, as you referred to it, you know, uh, in the previous iteration of transgender was a mental illness. So mm-hmm. uh, it was uh it was stressful for me to have that diagnosis, <laughs> it's yeah. quote unquote diagnosis, right? It uh, obviously it's just who he is. Yeah. You mentioned that there were some moments through that time that allowed you to start to understand what your son was going through. Yeah. So we, we went to therapy. Uh, honestly, it was more for us as parents than it was for him because he knew who he was. Uh, he did very little um, in terms of needing to explore. He, he tried on a few names and, and that type of thing, but he was pretty sure of who he was. But uh, my, my husband and I uh, needed more therapy than he did. Uh, and and then a lot of reading. Uh, we joined some support groups for parents, um, and uh, that helped a lot to, to come to terms with it. I was an open-minded person. Uh, we had uh, gay uh, family members, uh, so it wasn't completely out of the blue, but it was more than we were expecting. And if you look back uh, six years ago, it was when the new laws were being enacted in the U.S. around uh, bathroom use, and it had a lot of negative connotation around it. And then there were some moments that you describe, a a Halloween in specific, where where you start to figure out, you start to understand what's, what's happening. Yes, yeah. So he had asked... So he came out at the end of August and uh, and I wasn't, uh, we didn't jump on, you know, oh, let's just change everything right away. Uh, he was so young, I needed more time to process it. By, uh, by uh, Halloween, he had asked to dress as a man for Halloween. And so I went to the store with him and bought him uh, a dress shirt and a fedora hat. And we put a beard, like a fake beard on him. He was absolutely glowing he was so happy and I that was when it started to click for me that this isn't just an idea this is actually who he needs to be he needs to see a boy in the mirror when he looks in the mirror so that was uh, definitely the, the beginning and then by Christmas all of his Christmas gifts were boy gifts um, and and he had told the school to use he him pronouns and and things sort of unfolded from there and yet I gather the inspiration for the book was that when you went out to find information, you couldn't really find anything that spoke to the way you felt, which was neither as you described it, the pom-poms or horror that you sort of needed something in the middle. And that's what this book was about was trying to provide honest answers to what parents go through, trying to navigate something that often they don't, don't understand or haven't come to understand yet. Yeah, and and that this is something I feel very strongly about is that we need to advocate for the parents because the parents are the ones who help the children. And when I was looking for information, the, the, there, like you say, there were two camps. There, and and this is a narrative you hear a lot: is that parents of trans kids are all transphobic and like everybody's kicking their kids out and, you know, they're always using the wrong pronouns and, and we get a bad rap <laughs> or there's the, the, the select few who get it right, right away. And, and they're, they're, uh, you know, lauded as these excellent super parents, but there's, 
there's a process where the parent has to come to terms with this big change, this monumental change, and we are not raised the way our children are raised today. Like, I'm a, I'm a Gen X girl, and, and back in my day, we didn't have this conversation. So it's not no. that I'm not accepting of my son, it's just that I needed more time, and no one was talking about it that way. How did it, how did it I mean? I know you, you talk about some of the mistakes that you think you made, also some of the successes that you had. What were those like and, and how has it all unfolded now? Um, well, it's unfolded. It, it, this has got a wonderful happy ending, which is the important part. And what something that I want uh, other families to hear is that it's not all boogeyman and scary things, <laughs> because right. it is very scary. Uh, it what you know when I look back at uh, at the hardest parts uh, of of. Mitchell's transition. Mitchell was suicidal at one point. Uh, we had not come to accept it all immediately, and and there was some bargaining going on with him. And so there were some dark times, and it's so much better now. And and it really is. All of this is about taking our time. We need to take our time with our children. We need to make sure that they are persistent, consistent, and insistent in their changes. But with children, and that's the other thing, is with trans children, it really is a quote-unquote superficial change. It's changing the name and the pronoun and how they dress and, you know, what sports uh, they, they choose to play, that type of thing. It's all... Uh, superficial. There's no physiological change in the beginning. So um, it, it is something that we can all get through. And then on the other side, it's just wonderful. The people that I've met because of this transition, my son is just so much happier and, and an amazing um, c- citizen to the world now because he's not that distressed suicidal kid. It must be tough, though, for a parent when a child is of that age, because you're not only it, it, it's I, when I was reading through just all the d- different reviews of your book and so on, I thought it, you're that that is a huge life decision that that a child is making, and that seeding that decision is tough because at that age, I mean, I remember when growing up, you know, parents knew best, right? Uh, but yeah. There's your child telling you, "I need to do this, and it's important to me, and this is who I am," and that's a big decision and a big statement by someone who's so young. Yeah, it is a monumental responsibility as a parent, and it is terrifying. Uh, and it's not a decision that a parent is making alone, and that is uh, important to remember as well. Like in the beginning, um, the the I was worried about what other people would think of me uh, as a parent. You know, oh, you allowed your child to do this. Well, I didn't allow my child to do this. He needed this. And and what I did was support him. And, you know, some people worry, oh, what if it's a face? You know, they're they're just preteens, they're teenagers. What if it's a face? What if it's a face? If it's a face, I want my child to know that I supported him and that I was the safe place to land. I would hate for him to have thought that he wanted and needed something and that I was the adversary instead of the supporter. Um, but, it, you know, I, I run a support group for parents of trans kids. I've seen a lot of uh, families over the last five years, and I don't know any of them that were phases. 
I'm speaking with Tammy Plunkett. She's the author of Beyond Pronouns, The Essential Guide for Parents of Trans Children. Uh, after this, we'll talk a bit more about what you've been hearing from other parents, what the reaction has been to the book, uh, as well as just some of the broader issues out there. We're seeing a backlash, I think, uh, in the U.S. specifically, although you mentioned that it had been around earlier and just, you know, this is a day to, to speak out. And I was uh, going to ask you about that as well. We'll get to that right after. Well, on this International Day Against Homophobia, Transphobia, and Biphobia, I'm speaking with Tammy Plunkett in Calgary, author of Beyond Pronouns, The Essential Guide for Parents of Trans Children. We've been talking about uh, her experience with her son and the transition uh, that he went through as well, and just the difficulties and the challenges as a parent uh, to both uh, understand what's happening and then to to provide support uh, for your child through this uh, through this time. Uh Tammy, you shared a really in- nice story about about being at a high school concert with Mitchell, and sort of realizing that um, things were going to be okay. Yes, yes. So uh, it was. Uh, oh, geez, I can't even remember what grade it was now. Uh, but <laughs> uh, he, it was in the beginning. So he had just changed his name to Mitchell, and uh, and we were still making mistakes with uh, what name using the right name, and, and I think we'd gotten probably the pronouns right by then. Uh, but it was a very stressful time in the whole family. But uh, it was the end-of-the-year concert, and uh, Mitchell played uh, with the band uh, and then won an award for his um, his music um and when he won the award, the whole audience of students were yelling his name, Mitchell, Mitchell. And and it was so heartwarming for me to see that things are going to be okay because his friends were accepting of him and his friends recognized him for who he was, which is all he ever wanted was to be seen as who he sees himself as. So it it, it was very heartwarming for me to know that, okay, maybe this isn't such a big deal and maybe this will be okay. Tammy, do you still worry that, that the world isn't as accepting that, that, that there are, there's still, I mean, we re, I was reading about it again today, preparing to speak with you, uh, that there is always, you know, there's always people out there who aren't accepting. Yeah. Um, so yes and no, I, um, I don't worry very much for Mitchell because, uh, in all honesty, he's got the privilege of a white male. He presents as a boy. He's not mistaken uh, as anyone has been a boy. So he, he does sort of have that privilege. Unless someone knows his history, uh, he could easily pass. So, but, uh, but he, he, you know, there are other people in the community that I know uh, one of my best friends now is a trans woman. And there is a lot of discrimination still today towards uh, trans people. There's less access to, to healthcare, even in Canada. Um, our laws are very new. It's only since 2017 that transgender people are recognized uh, under our human rights in Canada. So this is still quite fresh. <laughs> And some provinces are more accepting than others. So um, it, it is still, um, there's still a lot of battles going on. What does this day, as a, both an author and an advocate and a parent, what does this day uh, symbolize to you? It's another day for us to be able to talk about it and another day for the topic to be uh, discussed and, and for a place for us to have the conversation because 
Again, not a whole lot of people understand what it is. Um, when I say that my son is trans or that I have a transgender child, a lot of people say, well, how can a child be transgender? Because they automatically associate it with sexual orientation mm-hmm. because it is bunched in with LGB, which is lesbian, bisexual, and gay, uh, that they automatically assume that it has something to do with sex and it has nothing to do with sex. It's your gender identity. And once I get the chance to explain that, then they're, they're like, oh, okay, I get that. I get a tomboy. I get that we choose how we dress and, and we sometimes push against gender uh, norms. And, and so it's a bigger conversation. So every day on the calendar where we as a community get to talk about it is a, is a celebration. (laughs) Um, A final thought to you just about what you learned in writing the book and what you've learned through this whole process that you could share with others out there. Um, well, that's a very good question. Uh, I learned through writing the book uh, that I wasn't alone, that there are a lot of parents who, uh, who needed more information and a lot of parents who need support. Uh, since writing the book, I've also learned that, um, parent, that, and I said it earlier, parents are not always given the grace that we need. Parents, grandparents, aunts and uncles, uh, especially grandparents. I spoke to a grandparent recently and she said that her child said, if you don't accept your grandchild immediately and use the right pronouns immediately, you're cut from their life. And, And that's a lot to put on a grandparent. She wants to accept her child, her grandchild. She just needs the same time that we all need. So, um, yeah, just parents need grace. (laughs) Tammy Plunkett, uh, thank you so much for sharing your story with us tonight. Um, Very enlightening. I appreciate it. Thank you. 